Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. It is so exciting just to see all the other churches that we have partnered with. I mean, many of them have helped us and we've helped them uh, because really we are one church. We're the church of Jesus. And in fact, that's what we are talking about. We are talking about our unity in this series called Undivided, We Go Together. And many churches in the South Florida area are doing these very same series that we're doing because we are truly one in Jesus. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't feel like that at this moment, does it? Uh, The church could be seen as very, very divided. And so does it just cure all the things that cause division when we just say, oh, we're undivided? No, it doesn't. There's a lot that we have to work through. And yet, Jesus has called us all to himself. And so if we have Jesus in common, then we have a reference point for our unity that we have to work towards. We're not here to pretend that we agree on everything. Rather, we're here to build unity in Jesus. We're not here to just say that we're undivided. We're here to learn how to live as undivided, united people because, as Winston talked about last week, Jesus has united us in him. This week, we're going to build on that, and we'll say Jesus has united us in him for a purpose. For a purpose. There's a reason why we have been brought to Jesus Christ and our sins have been forgiven. It is so that we could be united in a purpose. And here is that purpose. To be salt in a decaying culture. To be salt in a decaying culture full of hatred and division. And to be light in a dark world that's pervasive with evil and death and selfishness. I'm reminded of a historical figure named Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale was born in England, and she was born to a very wealthy family, and from an early age, she decided that she wanted to serve the sick and the poor in her village. She felt that she had a divine purpose on her life, and it was a call to nursing. Now, in that day, nursing was not what it is today. It was much more menial. Right now in our culture, we're celebrating nurses because we see what they are doing. We see the way they're risking their lives, but back then it was not so. Back then, nursing was much more of a lower esteemed position. And so her parents gave her pushback. Florence, we do not want you to become a nurse. But she knew that she had a purpose, a call from God to become a nurse. In fact, she was so certain of this that when she was offered a marriage proposal from another man, she said no because she knew that she was called to devote her life to nursing. And so she did. She went to nursing school. And after nursing school, she went and she served at a hospital in London. And conditions in hospitals at this time were much worse They didn't know as much about sanitation as we do now, and so there was a much higher death rate for anyone that was in a hospital. But Florence stepped in as just a nurse and began to make a difference in the hospital in London. In fact, she was was so effective in her job that she rose in the ranks and became well known for simply doing this. She cared about sanitation. In the hospital, she would clean. And wherever she would go, the death rate would go down. Well, in 1853, 
Britain and Russia went to war over the Ottoman Empire. And 18,000 troops within a year were sent to hospitals on the Crimean Peninsula due to injuries. The government contacted Florence. She was so well known at this point that they said, we want to send you and a team of nurses to deal with what's happening in the, in the Crimean Peninsula and make a difference there in the hospital. Now, Florence knew that it was going to be different than it was like in London. In London, it was a city in her home country. But when she went and, and helped her soldiers over on the other side of Europe, it was going to be very different. It was war. It was not her home country. But she decided to go. And even though she prepared herself mentally, when she got there, it was overwhelming to see the conditions that the soldiers were living in in the hospital. The water was contaminated. The supplies were lacking. The food was low. The hospital was infected with, infested with bugs and with rodents. The sick and the ill did not get better, and death stacked up upon death. Well, Florence entered in doing what she knew best. She immediately organized her corps of nurses to sanitize everything, to, to, to step in and push back against the, the, the decay, to constantly clean everything. And after Florence and her team had been there, the death rate dropped drastically. Uh, before she came, two out of five people in the hospital would die. But after her team was there and implemented these plans, it dropped from two out of five to two in 100. Two in 100. Simply by the fact that she was cleaning and sanitizing and stepping in and pushing back the decay. But it's not only that. She set up a kitchen for people with special dietary needs in the hospital. She set up a laundry room so the injured could clean their clothes. She set up a library so that people could learn and grow as they're recovering from their injury. But as much as she pushed, pushed back that decay, what she's most well known for is being the lady with the lamp. The lady with the lamp. You see, at night, when the lights would go out, and everyone was trying to go to sleep, Florence would carry a little lamp around, checking on each of the soldiers in the dark, sitting with them, talking with them, ministering to them, giving them hope in their recovery. And she became known at the hospital as the lady with the lamp. Just like Florence had a purpose, you and I together have a purpose in Jesus Christ. We are saved to be part of a people that has a purpose. We are to be salt in a decaying culture. We are to be light in a dark culture. We are to bring healing where people are hurting. We are to sow peace where there is division. We are to speak truth to those who are lost. And we, as the people of God, have the purpose of bringing light into the darkness. The scripture that we're looking at today is right after Jesus has finished teaching on the Beatitudes. It's his next uh, piece of teaching, and he talks about our purpose as followers of Jesus. If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus continues teaching. He says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? 
It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. The word of God. First of all, we see something that Jesus says, and that is our purpose is rooted in how Jesus sees us. Our purpose together is rooted in the identity that Jesus gives to us. In verse 13 and 14, look what Jesus says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, first of all, Jesus doesn't say, try to be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, you will be the light of the world. He says, you are. That's who you are. So many times when we talk about who God is and who Jesus is, I might ask you, why did you follow Jesus? And you would say, because he forgives me, because he loves me, because he provides for me. That's who he is to me. But in this situation, Jesus is telling us who we are to him. We are his representatives in this broken and decaying and sinful world. We are the light of the world. We focus on who Jesus is to us, but that's good. But right here, Jesus is telling us who we are to him. And notice he doesn't give us a to-do list. Here's all the things you are to do. Rather, he just says, here's who you are. This is your identity. Together, you are the salt of the earth. You all are the light of the world. Jesus is speaking southern here. He's saying you all rather than just you as individuals. And he's not just calling us to do a little more Christian things. We just need to add a little more churchy things in our life. Rather, Jesus is calling us to a radical reorientation in how we see ourselves. That we see ourselves as representatives of God's kingdom here on earth. As our primary calling together. Anthony Bradley says this, Embracing a kingdom-oriented worldview is also a call to a spirit-filled mission, orienting all of one's life towards Jesus, the King, and the Father's purposes for the world. God's people sent out from the church bring the kingdom of Jesus to all areas of life, mired in sin and brokenness. Jesus' followers act as agents of redemption and restoration in the world. Well, how do we do that? How do we radically reorient our life? Well, Jesus tells us, you are the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth in a decaying culture. That's what he says in verse 13. Now, in our country, salt of the earth kind of means something different. It's become a a colloquialism that means salt of the earth people are like real honest, hardworking people that you can trust. And, and that's what it means in our culture, but that's not what Jesus means when he uses that phrase here in Matthew chapter 5. You see, during that time, there was no refrigeration. We're talking 2,000 years ago. So what happened if you had a piece of meat that you wanted to save for tomorrow? There's nowhere cold to put it. There's no electricity. There's no refrigerator. You would pack it with a preservative. 
you would pack it with salt to keep it from decaying, to keep it from getting worse and decaying. And Jesus is telling us that just as like salt is to meat, so we are a preserving effect on this world. As sin overtakes our world and destroys and decays and divides, the presence of the followers of Jesus slows down that process. How? Well, by living out the Beatitudes. That's what Jesus has just taught us. As the world grows in arrogance, we are poor in spirit before God. As the world celebrates sin, we mourn over sin. As our culture grows in pride, we become meek. As, as, as people in our city celebrate unrighteousness, we long to see more and more righteousness in our lives. As people pay each other back for what they think they deserve, the people of God show mercy. And as the culture follows their heart, we focus more on being pure in heart. And as we do those things, we actually push back the effects of the fall into sin in our culture. We push back the effects of arrogance and pride and vengeance and division and selfishness. It requires us to see ourselves as God's answer to the brokenness in the world. See, so many times when we see something bad happening in society, we go, God, do something. God, why don't you do something? And then we pray to him as if we're not part of the solution. God's answer to God, do something is, I did do something. I saved you to be part of this people that's to act as salt in a decaying culture. God calls us together to go out and live out his kingdom values and, and push back against the decay. One of my friends says that the church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. The answer to the decay in our culture is us. The people of God, the followers of Jesus. In fact, that's always been so. I just finished this really long book. It took me too long, but it, I would recommend it. Uh, it's by a guy named Paul Copen, and it's called Is God a Moral Monster? And he deals with all the things that, uh, all the reasons that people don't believe Christianity is valid. But one of the things that he points out that I found so interesting is how Christianity has had a preserving effect in cultures since the time of Jesus. I mean, in ancient Rome, people used to abandon babies in alleys if they didn't want them. And it was Christians who found these babies and would take them into their home and adopt them. During that time, we also, I think you also remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the gladiator games and how violent those were. And it was a, a Christian who stood up in the middle of the Colosseum and went down onto the floor and said, this can go no longer, this is too violent. And when the emperor found out about that, the games stopped within a week. Christians have always had a preserving effect on culture. When slavery, slavery reemerged in the Western Hemisphere 500 years ago, it was Christians like William Wilberforce who stepped up and said, no more. And so many things in our culture we take for granted are actually the work of Christians who have come before us. Harvard, Oxford, 
These places were started by Christians who valued higher education and thought it would help preserve a decaying culture to teach people to think deeply. Why do you think so many hospitals are named St. Luke's Baptist Hospital? It's because Christians started them. Christians stepped in and they saw an area of decay in the culture and and they said, we want to make a difference. But it makes us quest the question, what about us? What are we doing? What are we doing to be salt in this time? We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. purpose of salt was to preserve things, but it was also to flavor. Salt was a, a, a flavoring thing. I, I never used salt before I got married, and my wife always used salt, and so like food had this brand new taste when I got married, because the, the flavor just came alive from the way that she would cook. And as Christians, we are salt in the culture. We're called to, to add the flavor of Christ to anything and everything that we're doing. But the problem is we're often flavored by the culture and flavored by the world rather than bringing flavor of Christ to the culture. One of the areas that we're doing that, one of the areas that we're being consumed by the flavoring of the culture is around this area of unity and division. See, if our unity means uniformity, then uniformity is flavoring us rather than us flavoring the world with true Christian unity. Because unity does not mean uniformity. If, if, if seeing justice happen gets flavored by the world's concept of revenge, then we are not flavoring the world with God's justice. We're being flavored by the world's concept of revenge. And if we let go of the concept of peacemaking and let the world flavor us with peace faking, we are not being salt in the world. We have to look honestly at ourselves and say, where are we being flavored by the world rather than bringing the flavor of Christ to the world? And that's an area we need to look at for true unity. Because Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth. When we say, God, do something, his answer is, I did. I saved you to have a preserving effect on your culture. But we're not just called to be salt. We're also called to be light. We're called to be the light of the world. I was thinking about this the other day, and I was thinking, if we could come up with something that everyone in the world would agree is the most hopeful thing, what would it be? And I thought, well, it's probably a vaccine, right? Like, if there was a vaccine introduced today, it would be like this bright burst of light in our world. Everyone would be like, we can move on as a, as a, as a globe. We can move on as the people of the world and, and move forward with hope. But Jesus doesn't say anything is the light of the world except you and I. I mean, think about how ridiculous that is. Does Jesus even know who we are? how flailed, frail and flawed that we are. We are broken, messed up people who do not have our act together. Yet Jesus doesn't even say you are a light to the world. Jesus says you are the light. Either we're right 
and Jesus is wrong, or Jesus is right, and we are wrong. I don't need to take a vote on which one that is, because Jesus is right. He's not mistaken. He's thought of how broken and frail we are, yet he says we are the light of the world. Now, you might not think that we can make a difference, but we can. We can, even though Christians are not a majority in this culture, even though we're a small church, we can make a difference. John Stott, the great Christian theologian, said this, Christians have the power of group solidarity, the power of a dedicated minority. According to the American sociologist Robert Belair at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University, we should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a vision of a just and gentle world. The quality of a whole culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. Stott goes on to apply this and say that was the way of Jesus. Jesus didn't start with 12,000 or 12 million. He just started with 12, just with 12. And within a decade, the government of Rome was going, what is this thing called Christianity? It has flipped the world upside down. Friends, as, as we enter in, to our world as the light of the world, it is dark out there. Yet the answer to that darkness is Christ in us, Christ shining through us together. And as we move forward, we don't have to have a blind optimism. We know it's dark out there, but we also don't have to be pessimistic because we know that Jesus has called us to be the ones that make a difference in the darkness. But we have to be willing to be visible. We have to be willing to let our light shine. We have to be willing to live as Christians in the darkness. That's what Jesus says in verse 14b. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's interesting there that Jesus specifically says the way we let our light shine is good works. I mean, we know that we let our light shine when we share gospel truth. We, we know that, but that's not what Jesus says there. Jesus says it's through good works that our light shines. It's through forgiving our enemies. It's through showing kindness to those who are angry. It's in caring for the needy. It's in following God's righteous ways without being self-righteous. It's in serving and loving sacrificially. It's visiting those who are homeless and imprisoned and widowed and sharing the love of the Lord with them in the space that they're in. It's taking risks to reach the unreached by doing good works. And this can have a huge effect. In a 2009 survey, one man named Ram Khan, who was a University of Pennsylvania professor, not a Christian, not interested in religion, he just did a study, and he found um, that one local church in Philadelphia, Philadelphia contributed over $6 million a year to the local economy by all their programs and all the ways that they served, which was 10 times this church's annual budget. 
First Baptist Church of Philadelphia contributed the equivalent of $94,000 in volunteer hours in the community. First Baptist Philadelphia uh, donated the equivalent of $78,000 in helping people get off drugs and alcohol. $700,000 in helping people gain employment. $59,000 in suicide prevention. $22,000 in divorces prevented. Now, it wasn't that they donated all that money. It was that the people went out and did good works in those places of darkness, in those places of decay, so that at the end of the year, First Baptist Church Philadelphia had contributed $6 million in the local community through the people doing good works. And it makes us wonder, what could we do? Well, we have redeeming grace, recovery for women that meets every Thursday night. That's having an effect on our community. Before COVID hit, we'd go out and clean the trash at no charge in the community. In the past, we've offered classes on finance. And it makes us imagine what else could we do in the future to be a light in the darkness? Where could we be a year from now? Today's our fourth anniversary. Think with a little imagination to our fifth anniversary. I mean, a year from now, do we want to be gathering and, and going, we made it. We made it through COVID. Man, we survived. We're all here. We don't have to wear masks anymore. This is great. We made it. Or, or do we want to come back in a year and go, look how God used the likes of us. Look how God used simple, broken people who struggle with faith to shine light in the midst of darkness. Do we want to view our church as a place to escape the world, or do we want to be the church in the darkness of the world? What could happen if over the next year we pursued doing goodness and righteousness and good works in our community? Well, Jesus tells us, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying what draws people to God is when Christians go out and serve sacrificially. They show God's goodness with love People see that and they go, why are you doing that? What are you doing? And we say we're doing good works in the name of Jesus Christ. And as people see God's goodness through us, they come to Christ. They join God's blended family. They gather with us as we go out, as we shine in the world. And we could potentially see much more, many more people in this room a year from now just by going out and serving together. That's what Jesus did. Jesus dwelled in heaven, the place of light, but he came into our darkness. He descended into the darkness of death, yet he rose again on the third day. And when he rose, he unites us with a purpose. You know, one day Christ will return. And he will bring the light of heaven into the darkness of this world. And while Jesus tells us that we are to be a shining city now, when Christ returns, he will bring a heavenly city with him. And we will no longer need to shine as a light because the light of the city will be Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 21 says that in this new city, this heavenly city, there is no need for lamps because the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son lights up the city and chases darkness away forever. 
We can have hope for that, but that doesn't mean we should sit still and wait for it. We have work to do. Christ has called us to be salt. Christ has called us to be light. And as we step into a decaying and dark world, Jesus promises to use us. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.